Welcome back to Where Are All My Friends, the number one podcast to hear Andrew Cram get really hype about people's come up stories. This week is with Chris Ruff, who is the director of international for Fueled by Ramen and Electra Music Group. And this is a particularly cool one because we have a ton of mutual friends who have also been on the podcast. If you're familiar with Johnny Minardi, he was a really popular episode. Those two work together. And if you're familiar with Chris Georgian, who managed Blink-182, those two are close friends. This was one of those episodes where I knew we had a lot of mutual friends, but I really didn't know Chris's story. He's worked with a bunch of different labels and a bunch of really cool artists at really pivotal times in their career. We talk all about that. He's worked with Sub Pop Atlantic. Obviously now he's at Electra, Fueled by Ramen. Really the thing that I love about this story is just the risks that he took at the right times in his life and following his gut and really aligning with the right people. So overall, just a cool episode. He has a really cool story. There's a lot of moments in it where I'm like, what, you worked on that? Or like just him explaining some of the campaigns and some of the things he's done. Super entertaining, super fun. If you're interested in this side of music, I think you'll really love this episode. With that said, if you do like it, there's a couple super simple things you can do to help the podcast grow. Sharing it with friends on social media, wherever. Leaving a review and subscribing wherever you're listening. And if you want to go above and beyond donating to the show at whereareallmyfriends.com slash donate. Uh, I never say this enough, but there is a YouTube channel. You can watch pretty much every episode that we do. Just search Where Are All My Friends. All right, there it is. Enjoy the episode. Let's go. Where are all my friends? We're back again. And I come into these intros every time very excited, but there are times where I'm like, yo, this one. And I think that happens a lot when it's these crazy full circle moments and that's definitely one of these right now. So we are with Chris Ruff from Electra, Fueled by Ramen. But it's one of those full circle moments because we really became friends just through the mutual friend, Johnny Minardi. And we like worked on tiny stuff together enough to be like, oh, hey, you're cool. But I don't know your story at all. But I know that if you work at that label... You have to be good people. The association and the friends, the mutual friends we have, all good people. So here we are. I know you have some crazy cool stories, and I really didn't want to scratch past the little bits we've talked about so this could be natural and organic. So thank you. I am honored to have you on for this episode. Cool. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's been great just like kind of working with you on what we're working on for the last sort of month or so and just getting to know you. And as you say, like we met through Johnny and... He's a great person and everyone you've interviewed that I know in terms of Avange, Georgian, all great people. So that's another tiny one where like we say Chris Georgian and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know him through this, this and this. I'm like, of course you do. So I feel like we're going to have so many of these moments where I'm like, of course, small world. I going to say, is there anyone that doesn't know that man? But I don't think there is. <laughs> I think I was late to that party. And that was such a crazy episode. Like so many people love that episode. So I don't know, whatever. I'm excited. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know who you are and what you do, just a quick intro to start things off. Yeah, of course. So I am Chris Ruff. I work at Electra Music Group, as you said. So I run the international department on the fuel buy side and I co-run the Electra Music Group International with another guy called Paris. So between the two of us, we look after... Every single band that we work, which is about 70 now on the roster, and we look after every band in every single territory around the world. So we're working with 52 offices around the world constantly. And basically what that means is I go and get drunk around the world with different bands at different points. <laughs> so you hear that? Follow your dreams and this can be a career. <laughs> and if Mike Easterlin's listening, I do do that more than that, honestly. No, that's that's cool. And like just again, hearing the little bits of you tying into the circles that I've heard, hearing some of the things you've been involved with. Uh, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty it's pretty inspiring to hear. And I really genuinely wanted to hear your story. So this is, I think, going to be a very fun one. So really where I like to take it back is kind of the first moments of you getting into music, wherever that is in your life, whatever event that was, kind of just like early days finding it, however that took place. Yeah, no, I mean, for, I was kind of thinking about this the other day because in my head, I loved music all my life, but I didn't really realize how early it started. And there's early memories of me sitting in the car with my dad and my mom and my dad kind of playing Human League, David Bowie, Eagles and all these kind of bands that I grew up listening to. And then 
my dad was like a punk as well, so he loved like the only ones and replacements, Clash, Sex Pistols, and obviously I'm from London, so the whole of London steeped in history and that punk kind of ethos. And that was something that kind of spoke to me very early on. And then as, as I kind of grew older, I obviously researched it a lot. I remember like pretty much my teen years was me listening to music and like pulling out CDs when we still had CDs and looking at every single liner note and becoming obsessed. And it was like this kind of everyone I loved was either on, you know, Lookout Records or Fat Records or Hellcat. They were like the three that I kind of listened to. And it was that like steeped in punk tradition, like Rancid was my first ever gig. I went to a Rancid gig at 13. That's such a cred show to go to first. Damn. I know. I wish I was like even lying about this as well. And that story is crazy because I went to, it was the Astoria, which is this tiny venue in London, which has since been shut down. And I was 13, definitely not old enough to like go and watch Rancid live. Didn't know what a fucking mosh pit was. Went straight to the front because I was like totally excited. Just got the absolute shit kicked out of me as a 13 year old kid. I remember coming home and basically like changing and just having bruises all over me. And I was like, yeah, you probably loved it, though, right? Like that was probably like you're like, oh, my God, how does this exist? Yep. That was pretty much it. I think at that moment I fell in love. And then like straight after that, I went to a Green Day show pretty much a couple of weeks after. And since then, it's just been a constant thing. And when I was in my teen years, it was like I kind of there was a bunch of bands at school and I realized that there was a secondary, I guess, secondary like industry in terms of. When I was growing up, I just knew about being in a band and playing in a band. And then suddenly a couple of my friends had bands when we were 15, 16. And there was a local venue called the King's Head, which was in Putney. And it was this pub that put bands on. And every single weekend, everyone in there was under 18. And obviously the drinking age is 18 in in London. So we all had fake IDs. Two of my best friends were in bands. And I just suddenly realized that... I could help them out and, you know, just I started off working on the door, just taking people's money and then making flyers because I loved like art and stuff like that. So just pushing bands that way. And I started to realize there was more to the music industry than just being in a band. That moment is so important. Like you said a couple that I think just like naturally happen, but like one, I don't know what it is with liner notes, but anybody who like whatever that inclination was to read liner notes, like that's like one of the first like, yep, okay. And then finding that first show and like not running away from it, but being like, yo, this, I need more. And then the moment of like, oh, wait, there's more than just being in a band. Like, I feel it. I feel this come up. So sorry, continue. I just got excited with that. Totally. And like, it was, it's that, it was just that love of it straight away. And when I love something, I get obsessed with it. And has always, that's always been like the way. And Looking back now, I guess through through 16 to like 18, 19, I don't think I realized what an important time in music that I was living through in London. Like it to me, it was just a Friday night out and a Saturday night out. But I was going down to the, the Hawley Arms, which is in Camden, and Amy Winehouse would be in there and it'd be, she'd be playing just sitting on the bar stool playing to about 50 people and then the libertines which were a band that were really important in british history they had basically house gigs so they were like really early on in the internet phase and they had they were the first band that put together a forum and they had a thing called the albion rooms which was just a forum you could go on and they'd basically put an address there and be like turn up at this address at 5 p.m come and you were just living in that like you were just like one of the people that would find the address and show up Mm -hmm. and you had to go it's such a like thinking back now it's so weird and it almost feels fake where you're like did this really happen because this book's been written about this now and it's like nuts that i was just there and you used to have to turn up there'd be someone sitting in a photo booth and they'd give you like a ticket and then you'd walk to the door there'd just be a normal flat like house they'd be playing in there there'd be like 50 60 people who would get trashed the police would turn up almost every single week and it would just get shut down. And then they obviously went on to be like world famous. And, you know, like I saw them reform, God, 10 years ago now, I guess it was. And they played Hyde Park. What era is that? Like what, like what year range is that, that you're like seeing Amy Winehouse just like 
randomly playing small shows and like going to all of those oh, it would have been like 2002 i guess it would have been around a frank album so it was like just before she kind of put out that first album i would have been 13 in 2000 yeah so it's like 14 15 16 was kind of wow yeah so it's like a little not necessarily pre-internet but very different internet like it was not as accessible and like as you're painting that picture like you really had to try like you were on the internet specifically to find something you had to like music discovery was not user friendly at this time no not at all and it's like it's just that progression of going to see you know rancid and green day in these small clubs at the time and then my first big gig was and i actually bunked off school for this which is pretty funny so, mum, if you're listening, sorry, because she definitely doesn't know this story. But I was like, God, it would have been 2002 and Oasis played Finsbury Park. And I went down to that and it was like it started at, I think it pissed down with rain all day. And it started at like 3 p.m. And I can't remember exactly, but I think it was Black River Motorcycle Club, Oasis and Suede, if I remember rightly. But I can't. That's not. Don't quote me on that. But just being at this kind of massive gig with 70,000 people watching Oasis when they were probably like just past their height. But to me, it felt like they were at their height and it was an important moment in my history of music, I guess. And just that was a real kind of wow moment for me. Dude, what about like American culture at that time? Like growing up in the UK... That's always something that I'm very curious of, right? Because I feel like it can be very easy to take that for granted growing up in the States, but I'm always curious of the perspective. Like you listed a lot of bands from the UK that were that ended up being world famous and very important. But then you also mentioned Green Day, things like that. Like as you're starting to consume music, as you're starting to find it, was there an impression that it was different in the States or was it all just part of it? Were you catching bands coming from the States? Like, what did that feel like? I was definitely early on a lot of bands in terms of, like, as I said, I was obsessed with stuff. So I would go on to, you know, I found like an album from Hellcat and then realized that they put out the, like, give them the boot compilations. And then I'd found the give them the boot compilations and just find a bunch of bands from that. And just growing up in that period, that was like, you know, Tony Hawk's 2 was out and fucking played that every single day. And that had like every single, still to this day, I think that is the best soundtrack. That's another like formative, so many people in our bracket of finding music was like Tony Hawk soundtrack. It's like that entire scene. And just, I used to skate when I was younger as well. And, you know, there was just that massive explosion in the early 2000s of like new metal, which I wasn't crazy into, but you know, everyone listened to it. And then there was the pop punk, like, Green Days. The I mean, I know that wasn't when they broke, but it was kind of that whole period of, like, American Pie films coming out and just, like, pop punk being absolutely everywhere and Hot Topic being everywhere. And WWF yeah. was that, like, big thing as well. And there was loads of crossovers between music and wrestling. And it's just, like, that whole scene at the time was just so incredibly, like, daunting to me, I guess, because it was just... The UK felt so small all of a sudden, which I'd never really felt but like thought about. And then all of these bands came, came from the US. And as I started looking into it, a lot of them came from the Bay Area. And the Bay Area just became this kind of like mecca for me. And it's weird because it always had been. And now I've had like a cool relationship with, which we can get into later on, of like the Bay Area and San Francisco. But I remember the first time going there, I went there when I was like 23, 24. And I just felt like a 16-year-old again because I fucking walked into all these, like, clubs that I'd heard of and read about. And it was just, like, this real moment for me where I was like, Jesus, this is, this is making it. This is it. Okay, so that answers that so perfectly. So then the next question is, you are just absolutely immersing yourself in all of this. You're skipping school to go to, like, very important shows. You're finding shows. Like, it's becoming the thing. At what And you're also kind of learning, oh, there's more to music than just playing in bands. So what then becomes the next step? Like, at what point are you like, I need to get involved? Or like, how does, how does that go? Because I know you continue to just follow music. Like, here you are. Yeah, well, you know what? It's weird because I kind of, I went to uni, obviously, at 18 or college at 18. Mm-hmm. Still kind of like involved in bands. I was band that a lot of my friends were in called The Vault and they won an MTV Get Seen, Get Heard competition and I kind of like helped in terms of just promoting them around Bath and promoting them around that area 
And then there was a band called Kill It Kid as well, who were then signed to Warner Brothers. And that was the first time that like I'd seen that people that I knew could suddenly get signed and be in this thing. And then I kind of just, I guess uh, the weird thing is, so I studied history at uni, so I didn't know what, what I wanted to do. It wasn't anything music wise. And I kind of fell out of thinking there was a job in music for me and actually started to, I left uni and was going to start to train to be a teacher, to actually be a history teacher. And then this crazy thing happened, which I think I alluded to to you already, where I was basically out playing football with my friends and this kind of group of people just jumped us and I ended up breaking my jaw in 16 places. And (laughs) the crazy thing about it as well is I, which I skipped over, is I boxed for quite like... A long time I think it was like 10 years I boxed for and I got to a decent level and I'd never broken anything <laughs> and then suddenly God. I ended up getting jumped uh and broke my jaw in 16 places and the stupid thing about it or actually kind of looking back now the funny thing about it is I got hit by this guy and I remember saying to my friend Sam who I was with like oh, I've been hit harder than that I'm fine like it's cool so I went home literally slept on it and just went to bed and was like oh, I'm fine and then woke up the morning after, and I remember looking in the mirror, and I had a face like quagmire, and it was just like massive jaw. Oh, <laughs> and you're like, I need to go to the hospital. And I remember, yeah. So I went to the hospital, and still at this point, I had no pain. I didn't, like, there was nothing. I was like, no, it can't be that bad. Like, it's fine. I could feel like a lump at the back of my throat, and I was like, that must be a tooth that's, like, been... And I was like, yeah. I remember going anyway. And then it took like a couple of hours to get an x-ray. And the nurse was like tugging around being like, well, if you haven't got any pain, like it doesn't feel like it's broken. I'm like, cool. Yeah, no, it's fine. Like, And I remember her like distinctly. I remember this moment because I was with my dad. And the nurse walked out, obviously looked at the x-rays and then came back. And like her whole demeanor had changed. And she was like stroking my face. Like, ah, okay. So I think like, are you sure you're all right? Have you got no pain? And I was like... No, there's no pain. And then she was like, yeah, we think what happened was the bone went through your, basically your jaw and it severed all your nerves. So you don't have any pain. Uh, (laughs) And your face is the face that I pretty much pulled. Oh, that's so gnarly. So then, okay, now you have this broken jaw. What happened? What do you do? So, yeah, I mean, well, that was it. It was like there was a big recovery period. And I think like to that point and... I think everyone that knew me would probably say the same. I was ambitious, but I was also complacent. I think like if if it was the easy way, I'd probably do it, which is not like the best way to, to live. And I think this, this kind of happened and I just looked at my life and I was like, I don't really want to be a teacher. Like I want to work in music and I want that to be my life. And I think that I can't, there was that moment where I was just like, if I want to do something, I'm just going to go for it from now on in. And I went through this whole period then of like a three-year pr- thing where I just did a bunch of crazy shit that was fun. The first thing being that I <clears throat> came out of hospital and started emailing record labels. And at the time, it was 2008. So we were in like a crazy financial crisis. So there was like no jobs anywhere. And so I got like no replies because I had no experience in music. And like I'd, I'd love to find them emails now and like see what the fuck I actually wrote because I'd be like, uh, yeah. I like music and I've never worked in it, but cool. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I care and I'll do my best. And I saw all these shows. And the, the crazy thing was then I was just like, look, I'm not getting anywhere with this. Maybe I just need to think further afield. And that's where that 16-year-old me was like, well, I loved like, Hellcat and I loved Sub Pop and I loved all these labels so I emailed a bunch of American labels as well just to see like if there was anything out there and Jonathan who runs Sub Pop emailed back which to this day I'm still like what the why the fuck did you answer that email dude that like how crazy is it like those moments really really mess with me mentally and I guess a good way but like the Hail Mary of like a I'm going to send this email. We'll see what happens. And then looking back at it, you're completely not qualified, whatever. Like you're just throwing it out there. And then that one person gives you a chance and it changes your fucking life. And I feel like everyone has had one of those moments in some way or another. And if you're aware of it and you're appreciative, like, I don't know, it's just, 
it's so important. And yeah, so totally. I've had quite a few of them as well in my career, which has been, and like the crazy thing is Jonathan won't even realize that that was what happened. He was just, that would just be like another email he answered that day. It's so crazy. <clears throat> I did like a Skype interview with him and a couple of other people. And they were basically like, look, we can't really pay you because you'd need a visa to come over. But what we'll do is we'll kind of like give you an internship if you can like save up for six months, we'll give you six months to save up and then just come out here for six months. And I was like, okay, cool. And like, that is literally what I did then like on a whim and a prayer. And I remember again, I just told you this story before, before we kind of started recording. I remember walking downstairs and just being like, so I think I'm moving to Seattle, just completely out of the blue. And my parents were like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> They're like Seattle, Washington, United States. Do you know where you live? And they were like, do you know anyone? Do you know like anything about it? And I was like, not really. I just know that I want to do this and I love that label. And they were totally fine with it. But I think that's been a common theme then moving forward in my life where I just do create like so off the back of that non-music related, but I then also climbed Kilimanjaro. And then off the back of that, I then did an Everest climb where I team led 25 people. <laughs> Are you serious? Yep. And that was all for charity. Like the, the first one, the Kilimanjaro one was, again, like another story where I woke up drunk one, well, woke up hungover one morning, should I say. And I was like, what the <laughs> fuck is Childreach? And I had this email from Childreach. And basically the night before I'd been out with my friend Jess and she was like, oh, I'm climbing Kilimanjaro for charity. And I just signed up drunk. And I was like, whoop, <laughs> guess I am too. Wow. And then you did it. <laughs> Dude, I think there's a lot to be said about just committing and full sending things. Like, I think that people that take those risks typically get rewarded in very crazy ways. Yeah. And they're like, I mean, that's two of the best things I've ever done in my life to this day. I've got like crazy memories and crazy friends from both of them trips. But then in turn, back to music, I guess, Sub Pop obviously offered me this thing. So I, fl I flew out at 21 to seattle never been to seattle before never been to the states before at that point in fact and just but aware of the culture very aware of the culture from culture very aware of sub pop as a label and kind of all the bands that i grew up listening to in terms of sunny day real estate and nirvana and all that stuff yes i yeah so i moved over and i remember this is like a really distinct memory actually because i remember being on the plane being like shit i've made it like i've made it in the music industry this is like <laughs> Yes. And then I remember getting there and obviously turning up to the office for the first day. And it's this, I, I think they might have moved now, but when I was there, it was basically above a bakery and it was like an abandoned building. So I turned up and I was like, wait, this can't be right. <laughs> like all my favorite music came out of this. <laughs> yep. And then I, Sorry, I, pre I pressed the like, you know, the button and whatever. And then it went up and it, and it, really, it was like fucking Narnia. Because you walked into this building and I was just like, oh, this looks awful. And then you walked into the actual office and it was amazing. It's just this like orange walls, like adorned with all of your favorite albums that you ever listened to. Mark Arm from Mudhoney worked in the post room. Like Kim from the Fastbacks, who's now one of my really good friends, was like a publicist there. And it's just like all these crazy things. And... I stayed there for six months and I learned so much because they were such a good label in terms of just being like, you don't know what you want to do. So how about you just do a month in every department? So I got to work in press. Wow. I got to work in marketing. I got to work in like every single department. And from that was like so important to me because I really did then know what I did and didn't like. I was like, right, I can't be a publicist because I don't like people that much. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> And marketing was this this kind of thing that I, I just loved. I loved the fact that product managers were kind of like the glue that held everything together. And they were like important in terms of the creative side of it, the artwork, the, the what the vinyl looks like. And again, going back to like being a kid, it's like that's the vinyl was like my kind of thing that I loved and like CDs. So the artwork and making a CD and being in a liner note was just like, insane to me massive shouts to them too that's so cool to be like all right cool yeah like give it a try work in all these departments we'll figure it out like that's in every bit of that that's just so cool so much respect there and it's like i worked there in 2009 
No, 2008, 2009, can't remember, one of the two. And it was the 20th anniversary of grunge, basically. So all these bands were, like, reforming and doing 20th anniversary editions. So I worked on 20th anniversary of Bleach from Nirvana. I worked on Sunny Day Real Estate and saw them play at Paramount in Seattle for the first time in God knows how many years. And, like, a bunch of other crazy albums. And I've got all of them over here, and they're all signed. And it's like, they're all my prized possessions. And that was my first ever job. (laughs) That's so sick. It hasn't got any better since this. You're right. You're like, I'm still chasing that thrill. But I think that there's a lot to be said about like, that's not an accident. Like you really went out on a limb and did something pretty bold. Like you flew to an entirely different country off of, I don't know, probably not a lot of savings and just took this chance. Like that's cool that that was rewarded and that ended up being such a positive experience. So then what happens? You, it was an internship. Like you had to go back home or, or what, what next? This is where it got like kind of crazy, I guess. It's like I came back to London and then again, we were still in the financial crisis, struggling to get a job. But I ended up getting like a couple of internships or a couple of, sorry, assistant jobs. But it was at a time when kind of illegal downloading was rife and money wasn't yes. great in anything. So I kept getting these jobs and then kept getting laid off like three months later. And I was like, oh, man, this sucks. So I was at EMI and then EMI got shut down. And then I was at like, uh, where else was I? Somewhere else. I can't remember where it was now thinking back and got like shoved out of there. And I just remember having this moment like maybe this is just not meant to happen. Like this is stupid because this is just I've tried everything I can. And then I got a call from like a recruitment agency at the time and they were like, look, there's this short term job. Someone needs an assistant for a few weeks. And I was like, all right, fine, I'll just take it. And this is like definitely the most important thing that happened to me because there's a woman called Jen Ivory who still to this day is my mentor and is the most important person and basically taught me everything I know. So I went in to interview with her, obviously got the job started. And then like two weeks later, I was like, right, here we go. Then I'm going to get laid off again. She was like, no, I think we can like keep you on like for a bit. And I was like, okay, cool. And then, she was like, I need to, and then we became friends. And she said, t- I didn't know this, I think, until about a year later. And she told me that when she'd interviewed me for that, she's American, by the way, I should have probably said that. She's American, lives in London. <clears throat> um, when we interviewed for the job, we just kind of t- talked about everything. I told her about Sub Pop, I told her about and everything in terms of music we were into, and we had very similar tastes. And she was like, you know, I'd actually offered that job to someone else. And then I had to call them and be like, oh, yeah, sorry. Because she was like, I just went out on a limb for you because, like, she was like, you were so balls out in terms of just being like, yeah, I flew across the world to do an internship. She was like, I just you don't see drive like that every day. Dude, that is so fucking cool. So you worked for her and then you kept working with her and she kept mentoring you kind of vibe? So, yeah, she mentored me for about a year and a half and then... The, the classic conversation came up again of being like, uh, we might not be able to keep you. But, and then she said, but there's a guy upstairs called Mark Mitchell who needs a PA. So that might be a way into Atlantic, which was uh, the label upstairs. So she was Warner Brothers and Atlantic was the label upstairs. Interesting. And I remember going, and this, again, this is like my, I've had a couple of mentors, I guess. M- Mitch, who's Mark Mitchell, is the one that kind of served me the longest. So I went up to his office, had the interview with him, and I was like, cool, we seem to get on really well. And I remember him ringing me afterwards, and he was like, I'm not going to give you this job because there's no fucking way you should be a PA because you would be bored out of your skull within like six weeks. Oh, like he kind of caught it. He's like, listen, like at this point, you're overqualified for this. He was like, but there's a junior marketing position going if you want to come up and do that. And then I was like, yep, absolutely. And I stayed at Atlantic from that point for eight years. Oh, wow. Okay, so that was like your first finding the thing or like really solidifying yourself somewhere. Yeah, and it was definitely... Again, he's he's very similar to me in the way we think. And him, Jen, and I all think the same way, where as much as data is important and as much as, like, looking at trends is important, your gut is feeling is always right and you should always go with your gut. And I learned that so early on from Jen and him. He was like, I don't care if, like, 
everything is screaming at you data-wise that it's wrong, just if your gut is telling you it's right, just do it. And that's like wow. where all of my biggest achievements and my most creative things came from. And there was just a lane open in Atlantic at the time because everyone that worked there was kind of more on the pop side and more on the urban side. And no one was really taking the rock side and the the kind of FBR side. So uh, FBR in the UK goes through Atlantic. So he just was like, look, you live this and you love it. So just like kind of take the FBR bit over here and just do some shit with it. And like, we'll just kind of, there's no pressure on it because it's not like a crazy amount of budget that you need to do stuff. And I, just, I literally just learned my job that way. I worked on the one of the first big albums, I guess I like worked on was Paramore self-titled in terms of running that campaign. Casual. Yeah, there was a girl called Karen Dagg who I loved to bits and she left and then I took it over like just after the album had come out and I kind of learned how to do my job on that campaign. Just a casual, casual album cycle to learn how to do your job on. No big deal. What did that feel like? Did you understand? Were you like, oh, this band might be like the most important, biggest band for what they're doing right now? Or were you just like the same way that you saw Amy Winehouse and Rancid? You're just like, just another day in the life. This is cool. It's like definitely like they were like one of my favorite bands. They were one of the reasons I wanted to join Atlantic. So it was like, and it's weird now because I've worked on a couple of album campaigns with them. I've been on their cruise, which is a weird... Oh, yeah, Parahoy? Yep. And it's like, I just, you know, it was a crazy moment where that went to number one and my career just kind of, like, went from strength to strength after there. And it was like... There was definitely some some struggles in Atlantic, I think, in terms of... I And Mitch, again, was, like, the guy that said this. And I didn't really understand it until probably two or three years ago where he's like, you're kind of a maverick. And I was like, is that... That sounds like it's an insult. <laughs> but, but I think like... I guess depending on what he means by it, yeah. it's an open... Well, I think what he meant is that... And like I was trying to think of stories to tell you actually in terms of like how, why he came to that conclusion. And I think it's just that like I'm sensible with budgets to an extent, but then if I believe in something, I'll go and spend a crazy amount of money on something that you can't really quantify. <laughs> I were, And I won't necessarily ask whether I should do it or not. I suppose that was the, the maverick side of it. So the perfect example yeah. of that is like completely different from the music we listen to, but I was working on a James Blunt album and oh. we kind of like sat down with James and I was like, well, look, like he was like, I know I'm not cool, so I'm going to lean into it. Like, he had the whole Twitter thing going at the time where he was, like, ripping people to shreds that were insulting him, and he became, like, that guy. And I was like, well, everyone sees you as this guilty pleasure, but you've sold 80 million records, so you're clearly not a guilty pleasure. Like, there are definitely fans out there, and I think that's what we need to lean into. And I made this TV advert, still to this day, which is the best thing I think I've ever done. And I'll send it to you later on. It's a 60 second yes. TV advert. And for anyone that like works in TV, they know that 60 second ad spots are fucking expensive. And to make a 60 second ad is expensive. It's 60 seconds long and it has no music in it. No way. Wait, wait, wait. Actually, because I'm really curious of this, like for reference, I don't know if you can say specific numbers, but like generally, like what does that cost? I, I, I truly have no idea. Mm. I think, like, you'd want to put a normal TV advert together for, like, five grand, and that would be a, mm-hmm. a 20-second spot, so, quadru- like, triple that, and then triple what you're going to have to spend each time it plays as well. <laughs> okay, so it's, like, 20K to produce it? Yeah, it's probably around that in terms of US dollars. It was, like, okay. a, a big amount, basically, and I kind and then- of, like, got away with it because there was an Ed Sheeran record at the time, and everyone was, like, concentrating on that. And I was like slipping this oh. under the net. <laughs> wow. And then so you produce the ad and then you're paying every time it plays on TV as well. That's how it works. Yep. Yeah. You have to get the ad spots. And basically the, the premise behind the advert was it was this kind of very serious advert where it starts off and you think it's like for an Alcoholics Anonymous because there's people sitting around in like a circle yeah. and they're all saying like their name and their age. And uh, and then it kind of like pans round, and then James is there, and he's like, "Oh, it's okay. We're all James Blunt fans in here." And then it's <laughs> like it's like just leaning into the fact that everyone's like sort of ashamed to admit that they're a James Blunt fan, but they're all just together. And I remember like getting it in, and then I remember because 
the the London office. It's gonna be funny if Mitch ever listens to this actually, because he'll definitely remember this. The London office, his office kind of is like a big glass room. So I was sat here and he was sat there. And I sent him the advert and he'd already kind of given me a bollocking for spending a bunch of money on it. And then a what? Uh telling off. <laughs> no, 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 no. Say the word again. I love this. A bollocking. A bollocking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you'd already gotten your bollocking. So I sent it to him and I just like stared at him while he was watching it. And you could see his face going from like slightly angry to less angry to then like bursting out laughing. And then he pulled me in and he was like, this thing could have got you fired or got you a promotion. And I think it's going to get the laugh. <laughs> Wow. I love that. And then did it like, so it did well? Like we won, an, we won an award for it. The album did really well. It's like up on the internet still. It's pretty funny. Okay. I was going to ask that because I'd love to link to it in the show description. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll send it to you later. And then, yeah, off the back of that, it was, I just went from strength to strength and it's kind of like, I took these bands where, who historically hadn't done brilliantly in the UK in terms of fan base so like band, but bands that were big here so like Hailstorm, Shinedown all these bands who are now like all of my best friends in terms of like people I hang out with all the time. Hailstorm yeah. when I took them on had sold out a 200 cap venue and never had a top 40 album in the UK and when I left they were playing Alexandra Palace which is a 9000 cap venue and they'd had two top 10 albums in the UK What the... So... Like, what were things that you would do with that? Like, you you kind of just, like, get assigned a band and you're like, all right, how can we elevate this? Yep. And it's just, it's kind of like me and Jordan talk about it a lot as well because him and Pat Magnarella, if you know him, have been, like, instrumental mm-hmm. in my career as well because I was working on a couple of bands. I met Pat when I worked, funnily, with Jen. I worked on a Green Day album, which, again, was, like, a full circle moment for me where I was, like, assisting on a Green Day album 10 years ago or whatever it was. Yeah, it's like one of those, like, look back to your kid self and you're like, cool, huh? Yeah, and it's just, I think I treat every band differently, which I don't think everyone does. And I, and that's not me, like, saying that I'm better than anyone. I just think that it's like, I go back to 15, 16-year-old me and remember, like, what I loved about music and what I loved about, like, how I found stuff. And that still is true today. And it's, you know, it's doing signed versions. It's doing like special events that you remember. Like for Paramore, we did a, an album playback where we like linked in the band and they came on Skype and like spoke to 20 fans and the 20 fans got to hear the album like 24 hours before it came out and all that stuff is just like, so I just honed in really on that fan base stuff, which at the time no one was really doing. And it's definitely more of a thing now. So to... To really like break that down, because I think there's two things that are really cool about that. One, I love to speak to it because if anybody's listening to this, trying to find their place in music, I love setting the example of like you leaned into a strength of you were a genuine fan and you went back to that and that's what caused success and just showing that that's valuable. Like caring and giving a shit about music and knowing those things is valuable and people look for that. So you would do that with every band. You would just like really focus in and look at what what was making the fan base and the unique. Yeah, like every single every single band or artist that I work, I have I can genuinely say I'm friends with every one of them. I've got every single one of their cell phone numbers. I speak to them all. Like I want to understand. Like that was a big thing again at the time where it was. It was more of that, I think I came into the music industry when it was definitely a cross between the old school and the new school coming in. Like there was still people that were in the music industry when I started that were like very 90s mentality where it was all sales based and like there was a communal bowl of cocaine and there was, you know, it was all that like crazy yeah. shit from the 90s. Like very like, that's like, I feel like the epitome of like suits. Like when you hear like music industry, it's like suits and there isn't a personal connection and it's very business and it's very just like black and white budgets and campaigns and not what you're talking about, right? Yeah, and then when the financial crisis happened, all them guys left because they weren't making any money anymore. And then there was no money in music. So everyone that came up was like younger, didn't care so much about getting a massive wage straight away. And it was more passion based, I guess. And I was like at the early version of that wow that's that's really interesting to think about because it's almost like during that era of so much like pirating of music 
you had this weird reset where you weren't making money on digital sales or streaming yet. Like iTunes wasn't even fully like ripping. And then CDs were all going away. Physical distribution was like slowing down. So the music industry did have like this dip where it was like not money and you couldn't afford these super expensive, lavish salaries and these people doing all these things. So that is almost that wave where the true fans came in and it was like, I don't give a shit. I just want to work in music. And it feels like you're kind of explaining that era and then you being empowered to do a job that you were really good at too, right? Like to have a position where during that time you could kind of break rules and learn artists and do things a little differently and have a team that's like, yeah, fuck yeah, do that. Yeah, for sure. Like the way I the way I look at every artist is that they are essentially putting their livelihood in my hands and I don't take that lightly. It's like if you're giving me your debut album or your 10th album, it's still your life and it's how you make money. So if I'm not yeah. working my ass off and working out the best way to break that or to do better than the last album, then I'm technically not doing my job properly, which is not right. <laughs> Dude. And like, I'm not trying to make this an advertisement for Fueled by Ramen or that umbrella around it. But I just, it's something that I can't help but notice of the people involved around that label since day one care so much about the culture. And it's so much more than just a job. It's like all of these people that was like, I was a fan of this. This means this much to me. Like, it feels like a family on both sides. And that to me, like, I don't know that that's so impressive to me. And it's so encouraging to hear that that exists on the industry side of it, because I think it becomes really easy to not have a look into the industry, hear major labels or hear labels and be like, oh, they're all a bunch of suits. But then to hear like you have people that are like, yeah, like figure this band out, do it, do what feels right, follow your instincts, all these things. I'm like, yeah, there's still hope. Cool stuff exists. Yeah. And even on the Atlantic side, like Mitch, again, who was he was general manager at the time, he was very much like a, a maverick himself in that he used to have these Thursday morning meetings that you would kind of dread, but also love where they'd be called artist development meetings. And he'd basically take a, take like three artists every week and just rip your marketing plan to shred. And he would do it. And I'd like, I'm not the the loudest person. And I used to get like quite annoyed by it or upset by it because it almost felt like a personal attack on you and your job. And I remember him one week, he like called me in. He was like, I'm not doing it as a personal attack. I'm doing it because what it does is it forces you to think outside the box and think about like, if this isn't going right, then how do we change it? And how do we break this band in a different way? And I was like, oh shit, yeah, you're actually right. Wow. You have had some really rad people around you in your career. Yeah, I've been really lucky. Like there's definitely, and that's an important thing to actually state is that there's definitely a lot of assholes in the music industry and there's a lot of ego in the music industry, but there's also a lot of good people. And I think like you've just got to find the right people and then stick by them. And that's, and Mitch was the big one and Jen was, they're the two big ones for me in terms of my early career. And we'll move on to Mike and Greg in a minute who run Fuel By over here, but that's a, like a slightly different story. But the yeah. kind of, the cool thing I guess from the Atlantic days was on the side of music. I also did like a lot of charity work and I worked a lot for <clears throat> women in music causes and like music and racism causes. So we started, there's a, an organization that I used to kind of follow when I was a kid called uh, love music, hate racism. And then about five or six years ago, there's a guy called Paul Samuels in the UK label who was like entrenched in that since like the 60s and 70s. And we rebranded Love Music, Hate Racism and Atlantic were very instrumental in allowing us to do that through Warner. So they basically gave us a fund. We were allowed to put together like this whole digital marketing campaign and kind of just spread awareness of how much racism there is in the UK and and kind of had, well, everywhere, I guess, but like the UK specific at that point. And through that, I kind of just met incredible people as well. And I was um, <clears throat> a part of, uh, there's a bunch of like organizations that I used to help out. And we managed to do, so every year in March, there is UN Anti-Racism Day. And we had this big kind of event in Leicester Square that we put on 
And we got to basically replicate that within the Warner building. So we brought all these speakers in to speak to everyone. And we ended up getting, and it's still to this day, it's like one of the probably the best things I've done that's non-music. And we got Colette Levy, who is a Holocaust survivor, to come and talk. And she like spoke to everyone. And that was like an incredible moment. And I think like that's an important thing to me growing up, especially in London, which is a cultural hotbed. It's like making sure that we're using the platform that we've got. And at the time I was working at Shearer and, and he's obviously got the biggest platform in the world. And he was like, yeah, cool. I'll do like whatever you want for this. Like I'll wear a t-shirt, I'll tweet about it. I'll do like, and he is like an incredible person, such a hard worker. And like, I wasn't, I never was directly involved in, well, I was directly involved in, I suppose, the second album campaign, but just being around him and seeing that growth and seeing how hard he works for, like, the biggest artist in the world is still the most hungry artist in the world is such an, like, incredible thing to watch. Dude, again, just you, like, seeing people working so hard and doing good shit is... What a what a path. Like, what a crazy journey where you've been around all of these incredibly cool people and causes. Like, that's so fucking cool. So then take me, because this is Atlantic Days. So now you've been with Fueled by Ramen specifically for some time. Like, what was that? Like, take me, take me to that. So that was kind of like tied to all this stuff. So obviously Atlant- on the Atlantic side, I basically worked all the Fueled by stuff. So Mike Easterlin, who runs Fueled by, was obviously very aware of what I was doing. And like, he was seeing how hard I was working and and it was definitely at that point I was getting frustrated as well in my job in terms of it was kind of it was no one's fault but it was very top heavy at Atlantic and I would, they, and we were such a good label and we were so like successful that everyone was doing so well but we were all super young like the guy that was the marketing director was a year older than me so he wasn't going like anywhere for a long time so I was like well I can't ever get promoted because you're not going anywhere. So what am I supposed to do? Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I was definitely just a bit kind of itchy feet of like, oh, I need to progress my career. Because at that time I was 29, about to hit 30. And I was like, well, I need to like start moving on, I guess. So I started looking for other jobs. And I actually, and like going back to Georgian, like me and Georgian went on a massive night out. <laughs> yes. And I remember just telling him this and like, I obviously was professional about it, but was like, I, you know, I'm kind of done at Atlantic. I'm not sure like how long I'm going to last. And he obviously took that information and told Pat Magnarella, who I'd obviously worked with for years as well. And him and Pat went and told Mike. (laughs) (laughs) This is definitely a small world moment or I'm like, wow. This is all coming together and blowing my mind. Completely unknown to me. I know this now that it happened, but at the time, completely oblivious to this. And I remember, so I actually got offered a job somewhere else and I accepted it. And no one, I don't think anyone knows this actually, because it had the, it was just pure coincidence that that day Mike rung me and he was like, listen, we're starting to do this thing called Electro Music Group where we're going to break off and we're going to start like, so Fueled by Roadrunner and Electra are all going to kind of be this this amalgamation of one big label group. And he was like, would you be interested in running international? And I was like, sick, that sounds wicked. And at the time I was thinking, cool, so am I just going to do that from like the UK and like be... And then, <clears throat> and then he was just like, you know, because when we sit and we get drunk at Reading Festival or like whenever we're out, you always talk about like how much you want to move to America. And I was literally, and I remember like stopping in my tracks and being like, wait, what? So are you talking about me moving to New York? And he was like, yeah. So, you know, like, and it was a Friday afternoon. He was like, you know, take the weekend, have a think about it. We'll like have a chat on Monday, Tuesday. And like, you know, we'll figure it out. And I was like, I don't even need to think about this. I was like, I'm going to do it. And he was like, okay, cool. And, put the phone down and then like an hour later Meg who's now one of my like really good friends from the states obviously had like emailed me flight options for Tuesday and it was like oh shit wait okay two questions here because this is again like tying into circles and things that I kind of know so you're saying the Electra that wasn't that long ago that that happened, right? That was like a year or two. Yeah, it's 2 years ago, so it would have been about two and a half years ago when I had that call. 
So, oh my, I didn't realize that's pretty recent that that really happened. Wow. So like Mike was just over here assembling the dream team and it was just like this super serendipitous timing where you're like, yeah, let's go. And you didn't even question it. Mike to me is like this, this legend that I've never really met and like, haven't had that much experience with heard about him through Johnny only heard good things. And like every time there's a story involving him, I feel like he's just this cool, casual guy. That's like making these big things happen and being, yeah, so, uh, you about it or not? And like, he's just like, so it's just so casual Dad, you... I call him dad. (laughs) Yes. That's so funny. So had you... Did you have a rapport with him already? Like, did you know, like, this dude's a legend? Yeah. So, like, Atlantic basically in the UK is, like, what Fuel By goes through. So I'd, like, worked on all of them Fuel By artists. I was just not part of Fuel By. So, like, he was on every email update that I was doing. He was on every call that I was doing. So I knew him and I'd been out with him a few times and we'd had like good nights out and he always comes over for like Reading Festival in the UK. So we'd always had like weekends together. All right. So it was enough to know he was a real one. Like it was enough to like check that box of like good people. Yeah. And the crazy thing was, and looking back now, again, like I I think sometimes I'm like fucking oblivious, but he, so Greg Nadell, who runs the other part of Electra, I didn't know that well. So I'd met him like a few times, maybe twice. And I'd worked like a couple of things with him. And about six weeks before this call happened, he would happen to be in the UK. And he was like, oh, do you want to go out for a meal? And I was like, yeah, cool. Like just, again, thought nothing of it. And when it all kind of came together, I was like, wait, was that like technically an interview then? Because I was clearly like going to dinner with him for, I think Mike obviously went like, you should go meet him and make sure that you want to work with him as well. And obviously again, me and Greg get on on really well. And like, it was just weird to think that I basically had an interview without him knowing I was having an interview. (laughs) That is so crazy. That's, and like, again, it's just, it's really cool for me on a personal level because being as close as I am with Johnny and hearing like, I I just feel like I'm a fan rooting for a team. So I've heard these names so much. So hearing how they are involved in your story and how rad they were to you and these parts of it, I'm like, whoa, cool. Like it's a movie unfolding to me. And that's, it's crazy. Yeah. And like the the craziest bit was, and George was involved in this bit as well. So the, the Friday night I got the call, the Tuesday I flew to New York to basically look at a contract and then like figure out if it was something I wanted to do. And it event obviously like ended up being something I was going to do. And that night was like the night that I signed the contract, which still to this day, I think is the drunkest I have ever been. <laughs> that's good though. That's like a good celebratory drunk. That's I'm glad that your drunkest isn't sad, but happy. No. And like, I'll, I'll send you photos cause it is fucking hilarious. There's, um, there's a, pineapple with that Jordan found somewhere I have no idea so there's just like 50 photos of like me and him with this pineapple and then <laughs> wait so Georgian was out that night he was in New York yeah I think he again I think it was like I think he knew about it he would like orchestrated it all and it was all like a big thing that everyone kind of knew that I didn't know I was like a stupid and oblivious to it but the the crazy thing about that story is I was staying in the 60 at the Lower East Side and I woke up in a different hotel, so <laughs> I, was, I was like, "How the f- what the?" And apparently, I was just so drunk that they put me in a different hotel that was nearer, so they didn't have to get me back to the Lower East Side. <laughs> wow, that's so! Cr- I didn't realize that all of that saga was so recent. For some reason, I was thinking that you were integrated in that before the whole like Electra little little squad that that. No, I mean I met I met Minardi like three years ago at Reading, basically. Wow, not like a crazy time ago, and that was before I moved, obviously. And then we've obviously just become friends since. And like that guy is just like crazy successful and like incredible just to watch. And we've kind of worked on 
he signed Tones and I, which is obviously like the biggest, I think it's the most Shazam song of all time and one of the biggest streaming songs of all time now. And it's like, we got yeah, to work think, on that together, which is pretty cool. I think you guys are due to break some more records on that soon, right? Like you're a <laughs> soon to break number one streamed song on Spotify. I feel like you're like one or two songs away from that. Yeah, I think we went up to three the other day. So there's like two more in front and Ed's number one. Yep. So that'd be a... <laughs> And then I think for a female artist, you broke a ton of records there, right? Yeah, definitely. Like even in the UK, like we, I mean, we were number one in 31 countries and we were the longest ever running number one for a female in the UK, which is pretty cool. Amazing. Damn. So that like you getting to work with Johnny on that was like another like cool bonding experience of like an artist having great success working with the team. Everyone's leaning into their strengths, just doing the thing. Yeah. And I think like one thing is just like really important to say is that as I've come up in my career, I've always like remembered what it was like to be an assistant and remember how hard that they work and how like crazy that life is and the big thing for me since I have been able to is that every assistant I've had I've made sure that I've like properly mentored and like give them the right advice and kind of bring them up and that's a big thing to me and like it just so happens that every not through any like personal choice but every assistant I've had has been like a female uh, assistant and I've always worked really closely with women in music groups so like, there's a couple of groups that we should definitely shout out in terms of like She Said So in the UK is an amazing group that kind of is very woman and music focused. And then there's like Girls Behind the Rock Show here in the US that are like an amazing group. You should like have a chat with them one day as well because they're all wicked. Oh, dude. I would love to. And I'm so, I'm honestly so glad you said that too. Well, two parts. One, paying it forward to the next generation of music. That's something to be said. But also like any women in music, like... That was another thing that I experienced firsthand because when the first band that I toured with got signed, our entire label, R&R, was a woman. Like everyone at that label was just like women killing it. And it always really bothered me that there was any type of inequality there because I'm like, y'all motherfuckers don't know who's actually running this shit. So that's that's cool that you... Uh, yeah, I always say like there's a girl called Eve in the UK who was my first assistant. I think she'll be running a label within 10 years. It's like she's incredible. Yeah. And then I've got Lucy now who again, like I think I said to Mike the other day, she'll be running our department in five years. So Love that. Yeah, link me to all that. I'll, I'll include everything in the show description. But also on the on the on the side of passing it back down and paying it forward to those next up, I love that you say that. I love that you feel that way because yes, there are egos in music and shitty people in music, but there's also people like yourself and a lot of people that have that mindset. That's honestly why I do this podcast. Like I remember how hard it was to hear stories and get information from people that I respected and wanting to grow, wanting to do it right and not knowing where to find that resource. So all I ever want to do is show people that it can be done right and that people that care can have success and it doesn't need to be this weird, shitty, competitive high school popularity contest. So like your story and hearing these things reaffirmed is everything that I've ever wanted to communicate in this show. So that's fucking cool. Cool. It's definitely like, it is, it's fun. Like it's the best job in the world. Like I remember <clears throat> there was a period probably about five or six years ago when Atlantic was like at its height and it was like we had Ed Sheeran and Bruno Mars, like all these albums that were like crazy successful and everyone in the label was like under 30 at the time and all, everyone was like going out and partying really hard but everyone was working crazy hard as well. Yep, that energy. Yeah, there was like one day where Claire, who's like my best friend, just turned around and she was like, have you ever looked around this room and like realized that us, as in like us group of idiots in here, are basically like responsible for like 55% of recorded music listened to in the UK? <laughs> Dude, that's those moments. And it's not ego, right? Like it's just like those tiny celebrations. It's like, this is what happens when you care and when you work hard and you celebrate those victories. That's that's really, really cool. Um, this is a hard one for me because I'm loving this conversation and I feel like to properly tell your entire story, like we could keep going, but we're right around the hour mark and I don't want to make it too, too long, but I feel like almost a good way to wrap it up in a sense 
tell me if I missed anything super important in your Electra spot. But past that, just the idea of advice to anybody who does relate to your story of like feeling like they're that next generation that wants to work with artists because they truly give a shit, maybe doesn't know where to start. But like, I think your story had so many cool risks and things like that. So maybe some amount of advice or your perspective to those next ones trying to get involved and trying to make it an even better spot. I guess like the biggest, the biggest thing for me is don't be afraid to, to take chances and to like go out on a, a limb. And I think like stuff I know, that that's we kind of like that's a lot. A that's a big old legacy question. Really so I started take a like when I was probably too young and probably not experienced enough. I tried to start my own label. And I can also I'm going to edit just tiny silence so like money. just fucking chill <laughs> like, on it. Yeah. Wow. And that's definitely you. something that I'm going to look at. I get like me and Johnny always joke about starting a label together, and it's like now I've definitely got the skill set to do it and it's definitely something that I want to see in my future is I want to start a label and run a label regardless of how big or how small it is I just want to put out cool music from stuff that I love and be able to have like a staff that I can nurture and look after and kind of grow in that way I think that's my end goal is like where I want to end up and I guess like don't be afraid to ask questions because that's a big thing for like I was one of the quieter ones and also just don't be a dick like that is the that's the it I think that's the biggest thing that I have learned is that there are plenty of dicks in music and they'll get ahead of you and it's the way that it is but they'll all come back crashing down like everyone that's been a dick that I've worked around has gone to the top and then like spectacularly fallen down and no one's been there to catch them on the way down because they've been an arsehole on the way up. And I think like my career, I mean, I'm only 32, so it's not exactly like I'm old, but it's taken me longer to get to a head of status than some people. But all along the way, everyone that I've ever dealt with, I've worked as hard as I could. I've been as nice as I can. And like I've shown passion and, that's the three big things i think just be nice show passion and work hard that's amazing that's and you know what it is is like that could sound like a cliche but it's coming from somebody that has very real experience in all of those right like it's it's not like you're like some 16 year old like life coach on instagram saying that like every single one of those things is backed with successes and failures yeah and I think just don't be don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Like if I hadn't have emailed three hundred labels that two hundred ninety nine of them didn't answer, I wouldn't have got that one that did answer, and I wouldn't have a career in music. I'd probably be a teacher. Yeah, that's massive. And I guess like just the, I don't know. Do you think that that spark that let you send three hundred emails and kept going was just your genuine love for music? Like, do you think that? The, the the all the rejection and all of the failures outside of the small amounts of successes that then took you there was just the fuel to keep going was just genuinely loving it yeah totally i think you have to love like this job is all encompassing like there like we just spoke about it yesterday i got up at 5 a.m to talk to a different country about a band and i finished last night at 10 p.m it's like if you're doing like 15 hour days on zoom and if you don't love your job then that's not going to be a fun place to be for anyone (laughs) for me the perks of it outweigh the hard times like there's there's no job i don't think in the world that is like the perfect job where it's going to be easy and fun and you're going to get paid a loads like it just it doesn't exist But I think what is incredible about this job and feel by as a label in general is everyone I work with, I love everyone I work with. I'm genuinely friends with and we go out and we hang out. Every artist I work on is a friend of mine and every artist I work on, I genuinely like their music. And that's obviously a big thing. And then when you're pushing that out to the world, you don't have to lie and you don't have to bullshit people because there is a genuine belief in it. So that I think is hard to find but once you've got it definitely stay on it (laughs) dude go ahead and drop the mic after that it's (laughs) that's it right there my guy damn Ooh, that gets me fired up i like that (laughs) that's cool it's really cool and i i feel it i really feel it firsthand and i don't know i think that's the perfect spot to end it because that says it all so well and i think 
for an hour, I think we did a pretty decent job telling the story. And I, I, there's so much that I learned there, but it's, again, it's the exact kind of story that I want to hear. And I hopefully, I hope that that example is there for others that need to keep following that path. I've got to say though, it is like, it's genuinely been a pleasure, like meeting you properly and like working on the stuff we're working with. Like that last sort of two months has been very fun for all of us and i'm sure we can share it all pretty soon but it's definitely one of the best things i've ever done in my job i think dude that that means so so much uh and it's it's so mutual like this podcast was long overdue and i can't believe that i didn't know this i, I can't believe how little i knew about you and we still got along great and now i'm hearing all this and i'm like well that's fucking why this guy's dope so no th- thank you for doing the episode oh good So there you have it, Chris Ruff's story, a lot of full circle moments in this one, but overall, I just, I really loved everything that he's about. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got value out of it. If you did, same thing I said in the intro, share it with your friends, tell more people about it, subscribe to the show, all that good stuff. Another thing is, if there was anything you didn't like about the show, or if you just have any suggestions in general, hit me up, send me a DM, comment on YouTube, really wherever. I'm always reading those, and I always want to make this the best possible podcast it can be. So any feedback that you have, any suggestions, anything, a huge piece of me doing this podcast is just wanting to help people and bringing as much value and insight as I can. So if there's any suggestions you have, I am all ears. Thank you as always for listening, and I will be back next week with another episode.